so everything's going? Yeah, a couple of last minute hiccups and stuff. But today we're heading out to the scene a day before the walkthrough. We'd like to see how the conditions have changed for transportation purposes. About three months ago, I flew back down to Gainesville to see the beginning stages of the current search for Tiffany Sessions, the University of Florida student who disappeared from her walk in 1989. How many people are involved in this production? I'd say we have about 30 people involved at this point. The Alachua County Sheriff's Office was conducting a massive search based off of a tip from a possible witness who had never come forward. You heard Terry Williams tell her story in the last episode, but in the months leading up to the new search, it was all a really big secret because any news about Tiffany's case has always caused a big fuss in the media. And so Detective Kevin Allen was pulling out all the stops to prevent a leak while they were trying to plan this search. I know you guys are trying to kind of keep it under wraps in general. What lengths have you gone to to avoid the media frenzy? We're doing everything in plain clothes and unmarked police cars. We've spent very little time out here so far. I guess we'll know better after this weekend because we're going to have at least 10 searchers out here. And we're going to have some site security 24-7 from the time we start until the time we walk away. So hopefully we can stay under the radar. But if word leaked out to the media, it would really be become quite a circus. You'd literally have CNN helicopters flying overhead if word got out. So for the integrity of the search and out of respect for the family, we would like a professional search, you know, not trying to show for the cameras or anything like that. I have to admit, I did not think that keeping the search under wraps was going to happen. For one thing, Gainesville's a small town, and sometimes the smaller the community, the harder it is to keep a secret, especially about Tiffany's case, and especially for half a year while Detective Allen was pulling all of the pieces of the search together. It was one thing in 2014 when the sheriff's office was digging up a couple football fields in the middle of the woods. But this? For this search, they were cutting down 40 acres of forest. I'm sorry, one more time. Who recommended 40 acres come down? Uh, wow. Highest probability of detection. There's a bit of a trail that runs through this new search site, aka the spot. And in the last episode, we talked about Terry, the then 16-year-old who said she almost ran over a girl who looked just like Tiffany Sessions the night after Tiffany had disappeared. Terry can still point out exactly where that happened, but since we don't know what happened after Terry drove off, and there are thousands of acres of woods out there, Detective Allen says the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, also known as NICMIC, used the trail and Beth Foster's case to determine where to do this search. NICMIC was also the deciding factor when it came to which side of the road should be searched. They did take dogs to both sides, though they didn't have as much access on what would have been Terry's left that night as they did on the right. They weren't able to take any of the trees down over there or dig up any holes, but Detective Allen told me the dogs didn't have many hits over there anyway, so the team decided to focus more on the right side of the road, where they thought it was most likely Paul Rolls would have killed and buried Tiffany Sessions. What he did with Beth Foster is either put her in his truck or her car and drove her to that area, what a 50 yards off Williston Road and 441, did whatever dastardly deeds he did with her, and then he dug a shallow grave right off the trail. The highest probability is probably going to be 
10, 15, 20 yards off the trail where he would have had his truck. But we have to assume that he could have stopped anywhere on that trail once he pulled off County Road 225, thus the 40 acres. But if Terry saw them and his truck was on the side of the road, are you thinking he put her back in the car? I don't have an opinion on that. You know, I, Paul Rolls is a very unusual serial killer in that his first homicide victim literally lived across the hall from him. And it was a totally impulsive move that he made. Tiffany Sessions seems to be a whole new ballgame. Beth Foster, whole new ballgame. Just for comparison purposes, in 2014, how big was the Beth Foster site? About two and a half acres. Since the search was supposed to be a secret, and the 40 acres of the new search were right off the road, that same road Terry had been driving that night, Detective Allen asked the company doing the logging to leave a strip of trees along the road to act as a barrier and draw less attention to the 40 acres coming down, as well as the eventual search of the site. We're coming up on the area now. That's how I always find it is that you go around that curve. one curve, yep. Mm-hmm. And then right where the white truck is is where we're going. Oh my goodness. So I see they kept us a couple rows of trees. Even though I'd looked over the plans for the search, I never could have imagined how big this search was going to be. And by the time I got there, all 40 acres of pine trees, pine trees that had been growing for decades, were gone. Yeah, so they're finishing up down here. When we went to the site that day, we drove around with a couple different members of the team who were working through some last-minute logistics with Detective Allen. And there were still maybe half a dozen big trucks and machines taking down the last chunks of trees and loading them up to go to the mill. So basically, like, his guys on the crew here don't know what they're doing, don't know why they're doing this. You can see there's a pile of tops oh, yeah. there. Yep. So I told him to take that stuff and drag it back to where the Did you catch that? The guys doing the 40 acres of logging had no idea they were taking down a hunk of forest as part of a search for Tiffany's sessions. They were just doing their regular jobs, clearing the land. But their bosses were in on the plan, and so the loggers were told they had to be really careful around certain piles of brush. I didn't really get too many good shots of the push piles either. I think there's still like 25 or so. I think the logger was able to avoid them all. Yeah, if they were in the GPS thing that... The push piles Detective Allen is talking about here were from the last time this area had been cut down, back in the 90s. Apparently, it's common to harvest these trees every few decades, and when they do it, there's a ton of brush and debris that gets left behind. Think about the stuff that would fall off of the tree when it gets cut down, plus all the brush that's already on the ground. It all makes a kind of blanket over the dirt that has to be moved in order to get the ground ready for replanting. And so they push that whole blanket of stuff into piles, aka push piles, to get it out of the way. Is that what this is on the left? Yeah, the, so. The paint red tapes. They were huge when we first did it back in the 90s. But, um. They brought it down. It was ball sticks and limbs and dirt, and they brought it down now to that. So these push piles we were looking at hadn't been touched in 20 to 30 years. They were left over from the last time this area had been harvested, not long after Tiffany Sessions disappeared. And yeah, a lot of what had been there back then had rotted away over the years, but 
if Tiffany Sessions had been buried out here in these woods, her remains could have been found when they did that last round of harvesting. And since nothing like that was reported, Detective Allen figured these push piles, these random mounds of debris that hadn't been touched since then, could be hiding a grave or part of Tiffany's remains. And so the piles would be the best place to start their search. There were 24, there's 24. 24 push piles all from 90? Yes. The team was hoping anything that could have survived 31 years, certain bones, teeth, Tiffany's Walkman or her Rolex, had literally been pushed into these big piles that were scattered all over their 40 acres. And when they brought in a team of cadaver dogs to sniff out all of these spots, the dogs gave full alerts to three of the original push piles. I'm Haley Holloway, and this is Shallow Graves. See Detective Kevin Allen. Are you here? Do you have an appointment with him? Yes. Okay. What's your name? Haley. A few months before any of the clear cutting started, Detective Allen and I had decided I should come back and go through all of the original tips from when Tiffany Sessions had disappeared in 1989. Good. How are you? Good. I think I have to sit up in your own private office. I hope you didn't help us solve this case today. You know what? Me too. Like, <laughs> what if that's it? The tips we were going to go through were from the 1-800 hotline Tiffany's dad, Patrick Sessions, had set up just a few days after Tiffany had disappeared. And while they had everyone from a private investigator to the FBI running those leads down, everyone I've talked to who was involved back then has told me that the volume of tips that came in was overwhelming. The leads were just too much. And I think in hindsight, having a 24-hour hotline in the beginning probably would have helped. You know, that's what I was praying. But after a while, we were getting stuff from California and everywhere else. And so it, it really kind of bogged things down. I think people kind of got it, oh, Jesus, now there's another 20 that came in today. But that was three decades ago. And as far as we know, no one had looked at those original tips since then. And Pat had told me a while back that he's always wondered if the answer has been in there all along. The fear I had, and I'm still not sure, we had so many leads that... I bet if, if you went back and went through every lead that we had, somewhere would tie back to Paul Rolls. I really think it would. It had to be looked into. As did I, apparently. So we will fingerprint you, do a fingerprint-based background, and then we'll do CJIS training, which is a criminal justice information system. Since Tiffany Sessions' case is still open, the evidence is not public information. So to be able to go through all the binders of tips, I had to be cleared by the Sheriff's Office and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Hi, Claire. Hazel. Place of birth? Oklahoma. Do you have any aliases, like other people? No. Okay. So we're going to start with both your thumbs. Once they ran my prints, I was cleared, and Detective Allen and I got to work. So, Haley, I took these out of evidence yesterday, and I thought what we would do today is anything that either of us see that is highly suspicious, mm -hmm. let's go make a copy of that, 
put it in a folder. But also, if you see something that you know really cries out to you, hey, that lead should be investigated. Let's make a copy of that too, because I'm gonna do exactly the same thing. As a reminder, Tiffany Sessions went missing on February 9th, 1989. The tips for the hotline start February 13th, 1989, a few days after she disappeared. And they end a few months later in the middle of June. In those four months, 2,000 tips came into the Miami hotline. And every single one of them was documented and eventually put into these binders Detective Allen had checked out of the evidence locker. I mean, what what are we looking at here? What you'll see is there's a little document at the bottom as to who the specific lead was sent to. Most of them were handled by Wayne Black, but some of them were sent to FBI Miami, some were FBI Gainesville, and some were faxed to us. We did not have a fax machine at that point in 1989, so past sessions bought us one. When was the last time someone looked at these? I don't know. Our agency has never, uh, to my knowledge. So it's been at least decades since anybody's... Okay, well, let's get to it. When we first decided to do this, I think I was feeling the same way Pat did. I was pretty sure something had to have slipped under the radar back then, and I was praying we'd find it on one of the pages. Remember, we were looking for something about Paul Rolls, who wasn't being looked at for anything in 89, or a tip about the spot, where Terry said she almost ran a girl over the night after Tiffany Sessions disappeared. Since the spot was the location the sheriff's office was planning to search, I was hoping we'd find a call from someone else who'd seen something way out there so that the team could narrow down their search site. And I wasn't thinking there'd be a ton of tips like that in there, but if we could find just one. Detective Allen and I split up and worked through the books simultaneously. We each pulled out anything remotely relevant and made copies to go over together later. I would say the biggest, most consistent category in those 2,000 tips was psychics. Really. And I think that must have just been pretty popular back then, because while a bunch of psychics and mediums would just call to offer their services, you could also tell when Inside Edition would air a piece about a psychic finding a murder victim because the hotline would get a bunch of calls about it, or people would catch the Sally Jesse Raphael show about psychics solving crimes and would then call to see if the detectives had tried that yet. There were a lot of prank calls from kids and a bunch of people who were just calling to see if they'd found Tiffany. Sometimes people would call and refuse to talk to anybody but Patrick, who was on TV talking about the abduction all the time. And so then different members of the hotline team would have to pretend to be Pat to get the tip out of the caller. There were people who called and said they should look into Tiffany's roommate, Kathleen, that she must have known more than she was letting on. A lot of people thought Pat was to blame, that someone was trying to get back at him within the company he worked for. There was a lady named Karen who called pretty much every day to talk about the secret codes she was seeing in the TV guide listings or the stock exchange that she was sure could solve the case. And then, for the most part, the rest of the tips were all over the place. People would call to say Tiffany had been abducted by aliens, she was sold into prostitution, she got caught in quicksand, the Arabs took her, have you checked out Gaddafi, what about satanic cults? Others would call to say, I saw her in Juarez, Belize, Antigua, Michigan, Texas, Oklahoma City, Knoxville. I saw her walking the streets. She's pregnant. She's a porn star, escort, streetwalker, pole dancer. Some people called and said Tiffany was on TV. She's an actress on The Young and the Restless now. She was on the Phil Donahue show or The Price is Right. 
A couple of women called to say their sons-in-law should be looked at in relation to Tiffany's disappearance. Other people called to say they had her. They were going to kill her. One said, I'll send you her eyeballs. The ones that seemed even a little bit credible were run down, sometimes by the FBI or the sheriff's office, and sometimes by Patrick and his private investigator, Wayne. A lot of people back then believed Tiffany had just run away, so there were calls from people saying she left with her boyfriend, she was seen on a plane, or, quote, maybe Tiffany doesn't want to be found. The tips and the binders were in order of when they'd been called in, and the further I got from the date of Tiffany's disappearance, the fewer and wilder the calls, and the less I believed the smoking gun we'd hoped for was in there. I ended up pulling 12 of the 2,000 tips to go over with Detective Allen, and for the most part, we flagged the same ones. And you know which stuff came from? Yeah, and I put them in order, but they do all have the number. I'll go ahead and admit here that I pulled out a few more than our seasoned detective because I included any psychic tips that were even remotely relevant. Did Tiffany know anyone named Paul? One psychic was seeing a Bronco truck. Another called to say he had a dream Tiffany was on a back road near a church. And technically, the spot is on a back road near a tiny church. In fact, Terry, the then 16-year-old witness, had told me she'd had a dream about that church, and in her dream, it had blood on the steps. But for the most part, Detective Allen and I focused on the other tips that seemed a bit more substantial. I did a couple that were similar to Terry's tip of a saw girl running in the road that was wearing the outfit. And so that was this one, blonde hair pulled back, wearing white and red, jogging on 75. It was on the 9th. This one was interesting. The next night, so Friday the 10th, a woman saw a car sitting on the side of the road, headlights on, inside light on. When she saw him, he was struggling with something in the front seat. Um got really weirded out. He turned all the lights off, drove really slow down the road, and turned onto Willowstead. Yeah, so long too. And then this one I thought was really interesting. It was a guy who said he saw Tiffany on her walking route at 6.15. And I just, I mean, maybe that's confirmation that she actually made it to Williston Road and then maybe was taken on the way back. Doesn't necessarily this tip was certainly no smoking gun, and honestly, it's not even something that really helps move the case forward at this point, but I still find it really interesting and useful because I have never, in all of my research over the years, seen any confirmation that Tiffany Sessions ever even made it to her walk. All we really know is that she left to take a walk. And so if this guy's tip was real, it would mean that Tiffany had made it to her usual route. And in fact, she was on her way back home. Let's see, this said she was headed east. And be on the way back. On the way back. Okay. And so maybe... Yeah, you could have the time a little off, too. You could have the time yeah. a little off. Um, and then he describes a few hundred yards behind her uh, some other people who were running. And that would, I mean, give more more credit to the idea that there was no one around. Um, you know, if you think by the time she got to the wood area and the closest people were a few hundred, yeah. a few hundred uh, yards behind. But anyway, I would say that was the most interesting one of all five notebooks, okay. just for she made it to Williston. But there was one tip out of all 2,000 tips that I read that I can't stop thinking about. 
This month, 645, the night she disappeared, man was carrying a young woman with blonde hair uh, into the woods. Kingsbury, which seems okay. like probably would have been checked out. Yeah. Um, but they didn't make any notes on this one. I'm going to go pretty deep into this lady's tip right here, because while it's not exactly what we've been looking for, it is, in my opinion, a tip that fits into the theory that Paul Rolls kidnapped Tiffany Sessions from her power walk on Williston Road, and into Detective Allen's initial gut instinct on Paul's place that he liked to take his victims. So the woman called to say that at 6.45, the night Tiffany disappeared, she saw a man carrying a young blonde woman into Payne's Prairie, which is this massive wetland, marsh-filled state park in Gainesville. And the woman said the two were off US 441 and Rocky Point Road. Now, that spot would have been about two to three miles from Tiffany's path, depending on where she was along the route when she was kidnapped. But what I find most relevant is this. Remember the woods off Williston Road where they searched for Tiffany in 2014, where they had found Beth Foster in 1992? They're right off 441 and back up to Payne's Prairie. And Rocky Point and 441 where this woman was talking about seeing the man and girl, that spot is about half a mile from the Brown Derby. And that's where Paul Rolls had left Beth Foster's car before or after he'd buried her in those woods at 441 and Williston Road. Are you following me here? The place the woman said she saw a man carrying a blonde girl into the woods back in 1989 is like a mile down the same road on the same side of the street as the spot Paul Rolls would bury Elizabeth Foster three years later. And it's even closer to where he'd leave Beth's car across the street. It's all wooded and it all backs up to 23,000 acres of prairie and swamp. And humor me for a second, and let's look at these last two tips together. We had the one guy saying he saw Tiffany on her walk somewhere along Williston Road around 6.15, right? And we don't know how far she might have been from getting back home or from that quiet wooded path where Detective Allen thinks Paul abducted her. But we do know there are about 30 minutes between the time of that sighting and this other woman sighting at 6.45 for Tiffany to have gone a little further on her walk for Paul Rolls or really anyone to have abducted her, and then for them to have driven the maximum six minutes it could have taken to drive from her path to the woods off 441 where the woman had the sighting. Is it possible that the girl seen by the man who called in and the girl seen by this woman who called in were different girls? Absolutely. Is it possible neither girl was Tiffany? Well, based on how many of these tips were bogus, I'd say that's probable. But someone seeing Tiffany on the route we know she took around the time we know she would have been there makes a lot of sense. And someone else seeing a blonde girl carried into the woods just down the street from where Beth Foster would be buried three years later? Well, that seems like one hell of a coincidence. As interesting as I'd found those tips, they had nothing to do with the upcoming search. They were on the other side of town from what we were looking for. Could they still be looked into? Yes. But after days of reading through tip after tip, binder after binder, we came up with nothing to help this new search of the spot. 
I do think it's important to note here, though, that that didn't necessarily mean our theory that someone could have called in something relevant was wrong. And that's because, as it turned out, we were missing days of tips from right after Tiffany disappeared. And most of the original tips that came into the sheriff's office. I hadn't even thought about that these would be different than what people called the sheriff's office with, because I did notice like two binders in that most of them were from South Florida. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was really odd. A reminder here that back in 1989, the sheriff's office was beyond overwhelmed with Tiffany's case. A lot of people say it wasn't until the student murders the next year that the sheriff's office learned how to really handle this kind of thing. So when people called the sheriff's office with a tip about Tiffany's case, it got jotted down and looked into, but then most of the tips were eventually discarded. Because Detective Allen says the only tips that still exist, other than notes from previous detectives, are these binders from Pat's tip line down in Miami. And that tip line was started on February 13th, 1989. So any tips in those first days after Tiffany disappeared on the 9th are gone. You know, in hindsight, you know, we should have done that up here. That's the bottom line. 100%. Um, and so it's a shame that none of that's still around. Okay, so what about all of the other pieces? The leads we've talked about so far in this series. Because this case is still lacking any physical evidence that Paul Rolls kidnapped and murdered Tiffany Sessions. If you'll remember, Detective Allen had told me about the knife Paul and Kathy Rolls' son, Andrew, had given him. And there was also Paul's red Ford Bronco that they were trying to track down and peel apart for DNA. We talked in that series I did about all of the other pieces that you were still trying to track down. Have they all gone the wayside? Yes. We did find what happened to the red Ford Bronco. It was crushed in Jacksonville, so we ran that lead down. Crushed and gone forever. And the knife, Paul's favorite knife that had been given to Andrew, it was pulled apart in a lab and had no DNA on it. So the knife's a bust, and the truck basically disappeared into thin air. So what about Tiffany's watch? Had it turned up anywhere? The fact that Tiffany Sessions was wearing the Rolex watch that her father gave her, we still thought that there was a possibility that someone either pawned that watch at some point or that it would still be on her wrist somewhere. So we contacted Rolex International, and there's never been any report nationally and internationally that anyone walked into a Rolex store asking for uh, that watch to be worked on, repaired, or sold. Okay, so the watch hasn't turned up anywhere official. But remember how Andrew said Paul had given Kathy a gold watch for Christmas one year, and detectives thought there was a possibility that watch could have been Tiffany's? Andrew also told detectives he'd remembered seeing his mom's watch as recently as 2005 2006-ish. Apparently, she still wore it. So the next logical step for the detectives was to find Kathy Rolls. We tried to run down Kathy Rolls, and her family was very uh, uncooperative. Actually, another detective and I drove to South Carolina to talk to her, and she wouldn't even let us in the house. The detectives had tracked down one of Kathy's daughters. Remember, they were teenagers when Paul got out of prison in the 80s, married Kathy, their mom, and moved in with them. She said, uh, Paul Rolls was my stepfather. I, I hate him now, and I hate him then, and I'm not going to let you talk to my mother. My mother has dementia, and I don't want this to mess up her life. Detective Allen says the daughter was so uncooperative, they had to subpoena her. And that's how they found out her mom, Kathy Rolls, was in a nursing home in South Carolina. 
we found out where Catherine Rolls was, and the physician said she was extremely impaired. She had no short-term memory at all. She didn't even know whether she was in pain or not. And for all intents and purposes, she is a vegetable, so we really cannot interview her at this point. So she has not been interviewed. Andrew told me Kathy Rolls died a couple of years ago. Other than when she was brought in by the Student Murder Task Force, she was never interviewed by detectives about her husband. And so she took with her any answers or possible remaining clues that only a spouse could know. The only thing Detective Allen really had left to work with was Terry's story about seeing a girl run out into the road 31 years ago. So, let's see. Are we ready? Yes. At the end of this past February, I flew back down to Gainesville for what I was positive would be my last trip down there. The sheriff's office and Nick Mick had been carrying out their search of the spot for a month and a half, and I was under the impression they were wrapping it up. I called this search phase two of the operation. Phase one, of course, was bringing cadaver dogs in and then prepping the site. Phase two also involved cadaver dogs, but a new set of cadaver dogs to see if they could confirm any location that the first cadaver dog said there were more human remains. Once the 40 acres of trees had come down, there were basically two ways they started looking for bones. Uh, Yesterday, we did a ground search of all 40 acres. And a ground search is you basically put a lot of people that know what bones look like in a line, and then you stand about two feet apart and you just walk the entire site. And we had a couple near finds. So there was this whole line of people walking side by side, staring at the ground over all 40 acres, looking for any bones or mounds on the surface. And Detective Allen told me there were several times someone would say, hey, I found something. And so the experts on site would come over and look and they'd be able to tell whether the bone had come from a human or an animal. And the pound lab people generally said, you know, animal, animal, but on two different occasions, they said not sure, so they went in, got close, took photographs, sent them back to their lab. They brought a kid out for some chemical work on one of them, but all were determined to be non-human. The other way they looked for bones was just like the search in 2014, where the dogs said to dig, they dug. Remember, the dogs had given full alerts to three of the original pushpiles from the 90s, which basically meant, hey, there are human remains here. So just like in 2014, the team started digging and then watched as buckets of dirt dumped out of the sky. If you remember that map, the rolled push piles when they originally harvested that place and when they replanted it, they had taken all the debris and pushed them into big piles. So they were very close to three of those push piles, number one, number seven, and number nine. So uh, Nick Mick recommended that we excavate those three sites. Most clandestine graves are three to four feet down because the bad guys really don't want to spend a lot of time getting rid of a body. And in Paul Roll's case, that's exactly what he did with Beth Foster. She was almost right near the surface when she was located. It took us about one full day to do each one of those sites. I would say they were maybe 30 yards long. We just went all the way four feet down to clear soil. They found nothing. And I think this had to have been really unsettling for a lot of people because, remember, the push piles in these woods had been there for decades. And they had the highest probability of holding anything relevant because no one had ever touched them. And then all of these dogs alerted to the same three push piles that were relatively close to each other. And when the team dug all the way down, they didn't even find a tooth. And this time, there was no septic tank to point to. 
Nickmick even took a soil sample because they don't really know why the dogs alerted there. It just really doesn't seem to be an exact science, and it's pretty hit or miss from what I know and from talking to cadaver dog handlers, but mostly other homicide investigators, because I think we've all been in the same boat. So they were just alerting to nothing? We don't know, and that's why they took some soil samples. Okay. Come on up here. That week, I found myself at another sheriff's office press conference, almost in the woods, though this one was much different than the last. I'm Sheriff Sadie Darnell of the Dodger County Sheriff's Office. With me today is Hillary Sessions, mother of Tiffany Sessions, Kevin Allen, our cold case investigator at the Sheriff's Office. And we're on site of a search area that has been worked uh, for a couple weeks because uh, Investigator Allen was able to uh, obtain some credible information. that We were just outside the spot and once again listening to the Alachua County Sheriff Sadie Darnell and Tiffany's mom Hillary Sessions tell us about another search for Tiffany. Pat had also been there for the search, but he hadn't stayed for the press conference. And this time, that press conference was just two young reporters from the local Gainesville TV stations, a veteran newspaper reporter I remembered from my time there, and me. And it was painfully obvious that the young TV reporters had never even heard of Tiffany Sessions, that this was just their assignment for the day, and that was it. And I remembered being in their shoes because that had been the case with me six years ago when I was assigned the story for the first time. But this time, after years of staying with this case and keeping in touch with Tiffany's family, I was able to watch the press conference differently. Back then, I heard the headline, the story, the words. This time, I saw two women who'd been marching this thing forward longer than a lot of people thought they should. I saw a mom who had done this exact dog and pony show more times than she could count because she never knew which time might bring them the right answer and might bring her daughter home. I saw a sheriff who has been with this case and this family since the beginning, and she's never let the case close, even when it made sense to do so. And I saw these two women holding each other's hand just out of the frame of the cameras because even though they'd been doing this, for 31 years, they still hadn't found their girl. And while it can easily become a story to us, having to remind people about Tiffany, to create opportunities to talk about her, and to say, we still can't find her, is still painful for them. You have us give a sense of Tiffany when you talk, which is so great. <laughs> so great. Both women still believe the answer is out there that someone like Terry could still come forward. If someone held on to information for a variety of reasons, thinking it may not be pertinent or, or beneficial to the case, please bring that forward. You never know how one piece of information can complete the puzzle that we need uh, to complete this, this investigation. I know this was kind of the last, the last spot of what yeah, if. But, but you know, you never know when somebody's going to come through. And with all this media attention, um, somebody may come through today, mm -hmm. tomorrow, three weeks from now. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are looking for. Because mm -hmm. you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else on, on the back of your mind of another spot? or was, was No. Set? No, not at the moment. But you never know. Okay. If somebody comes forward and says, well, we saw this or we did this or, you know, this, this has been bothering me for all this time. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, we just take it one day at a time. But what I didn't know when I was talking to Hillary that day was that this search wasn't wrapped up. And in fact, the biggest piece of the search, the part that has the highest probability of finding something, was and is currently still to come. I don't think the search of this location is over. If Tiffany's on that site, this is the one thing that we did not do in the search. We did not go four foot down over all 40 acres. We only went four feet down where the cadaver dogs alerted. So they clear cut 40 acres of woods out here, right? Well, apparently the next step in the harvesting cycle is replanting all of those trees. And to do that, they have to till the land, which basically means they're going to dig way down into all 40 acres of dirt. The process involves this. They bring in heavy equipment and they have a very powerful steel three-foot blades. And they go from the surface, and, they, and these are circular blades, so they go deep into the ground three feet, which is where human remains would be at that point, and they till the soil and they bring it to the surface. So this is a great opportunity for us because we only excavated three fairly small portions considering it's all 40 acres. I think it's highly probable we'll come back when they prep the land and when they till the land for replanting because there's a good chance some old remains could be brought to the surface. Detective Allen says that piece of the search is probably going to happen later this year. I'll be there and I'll let you know what happens. In the meantime, I think there's another major piece of this case that still has to be looked into. What are the odds that someone who had these urges only did this the number of times we know about? Right, right. There are many more that we just don't know about. It has to be rapes and murders and bodies left wherever. I've asked every single person I've talked to about this case, from the detectives to family, if it's even possible that Linda, Tiffany, Beth and Laura were Paul Roll's only victims. No, it's, I don't think that's remotely possible that these are the only victims. What are the odds that there are no other victims from Paul Rolls? I would think pretty slim. Do I think there are other victims? Yes. Uh, where they are, I don't know. Do you think that there are more victims than we know about? I think there's a lot more victims than y'all know about. So, who else is he responsible for? We have a few clues on where to start. I found a 1994 subpoena in Paul's file where detectives wanted his Pizza Hut timesheets for certain dates in previous years. So, what were they looking at Paul for back then? What had happened on those dates? I also found a letter from another case where someone was suggesting they look into Paul. What happened there? And then there's this from Detective Sergeant Kenny Mack. In going over the information prior to our speaking, I turned up another possible homicide. There's more. He didn't stop. He didn't stop. Here's the thing. We know that Paul Rolls lived in Miami, Gainesville, Jacksonville, and Tampa. We know that he delivered pizzas all over town in both Gainesville and Jacksonville. We know that he drove a truck for Crom Equipment Rentals 200 miles in any given direction from Gainesville. There are a lot of young girls who went missing in the 80s and 90s, and their cases still haven't been solved. I don't know how many of them have been looked at through the lens of Paul Rule's M.O. I don't even know if he's responsible for any other murders. But I'm gonna start digging. And if I find anything, you'll be the first to know. 
So that's it for now. You know what I know. And now I want to know what you think. I have a question and answer episode coming up, and I'm going to answer your questions about this podcast, and I'd also like to include your ideas and theories about this case. You can call and leave me a voicemail at 352-559-5007, or shoot me an email at shallowgravespodcast at gmail.com. I also set up another Instagram account with pictures and videos that are related to this case, and you can find it under at shallowgravespodcast. Putting this podcast together has been one of the most fulfilling projects of my career in journalism, and even though I've done it primarily as a team of one, I couldn't really have done it without the help of a lot of different people. First and foremost, I want to thank all of the people who agreed to participate and sit down with me for interviews. The voices you've heard in this series, detectives, families, victims, thank you for your vulnerability, honesty, and time. Thank you to the Alachua County Sheriff's Office for being so media-friendly and giving me unprecedented access. Art, Brett, Sheriff Darnell, thanks for working with me for the past six years and counting. Detective Kevin Allen, you have given me hours on hours on hours of your time over the years, and I can't say thank you enough. I appreciate your trust in me and our friendship more than you know. Thank you to Kenna Griffin for continuing to teach me, even though I haven't been in your classroom in many years. And thanks to Wendy Brunner for everything you know. And as always, thank you, thank you to Jessica Miguel for your time, for catching my mistakes, and for cheering me on the whole way. I mean it when I say I could not have pressed publish without your approval. Thank you to my family, who I don't think really understood what I was doing for the last year and a half. None of you have even the slightest interest in true crime, and a lot of you had never even heard of podcasts, and yet you still got on board with full support. I love you guys. And finally, to my sweet husband, Michael, who never asked to be part of this project, but was forced into being my right-hand man. From the day I woke you up by yelling about how I decided to do this podcast, to every time I said, I'm flying to Florida tomorrow, to each time I cried to you about these cases, you've been my biggest and best support. Thank you for getting me, believing in me, and pushing me to the end. I love you. And I'm sorry for all the nights you woke up with nightmares after having to listen to drafts of each episode. Music for this podcast is by Mark at Lineout Studio. Music editing and audio restoration is by Aston Lopez.